unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Ro Khanna is a member of the United States Congress who has represented California's 17th Congressional District since 2017. He also serves as co-chair of the Congressional Caucus on India and Indian Americans, and he recently led a bipartisan delegation to India that coincided with India's Independence Day. During their visit, the eight-member delegation met with business, tech, and government leaders in Mumbai, Hyderabad, and New Delhi. To talk more about his visit and his views on U.S.-India relations, I'm pleased to welcome Congressman Khanna to the show for the very first time. Congressman, thanks so much for taking the time. Well, it's an honor to be on. Thank you for having me. So I want to ask uh, you about your recent trip to India. As you know, the Biden administration welcomed Prime Minister Modi to Washington for a historic visit back in June. Modi, of course, was the guest of honor at a White House state dinner. He addressed joint session of Congress, and he held a series of meetings with business leaders, diaspora representatives. You know, given that the Modi visit just took place in June, tell us a little bit about why you felt the need to go to India at this particular juncture. Well, it was to build on the momentum of the prime minister's visit to the United States and in preparation for the president's visit in September to India with India hosting the G20. We had a historic trip where, for the first time, a bipartisan congressional delegation was there uh, at the Red Fort uh, on uh, India's Independence Day, seated with the other ambassadors and uh, foreign dignitaries. Uh, We met, of course, with the prime minister, with uh, Jay Shankar, uh, Minister Jay Shankar, but also with a lot of the business leaders, with Amitabh Bachchan and uh, cultural influencers. And the purpose was to strengthen not just the defense ties and the economic ties, uh, but also the people-to-people ties, which ultimately uh, define strong alliances. It's not just uh, a, a bond between governments, but a bond between people. And I would say it was a, a very successful trip. So I want to ask you a little bit about that speech that Modi gave from the Red Fort. But before I do that, um, I want to ask you a little bit about your own personal journey. Uh, I want to go back four years ago, and this was just months uh, after the Modi-led government was brought back to power in the 2019 general elections. And you had uh, this post on Twitter. I just want to read it. You said, it's the duty of every American politician of Hindu faith to stand for pluralism, reject Hindutva, and speak for equal rights for Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, Buddhists, and Christians. And you went on to note that this is the vision uh, of India my grandfather, Amarnath Vidyalankar, fought for. You know, tell us a little bit, for those who don't know, about your grandfather and the impact that his life and his work had on your own views of India. Well, my grandfather is someone I uh, deeply admire. Uh, I uh, got to meet with him a number of times in the summers uh, when I was a young boy. He passed away when I was around nine, but I have memories of him telling stories about the Mahabharata and about uh, uh, the Indian independence movement. He worked for Lala Lajpat Rai. He was in jail in the early 1930s, and then again with Quit India in the 1940s, and became part of India's very first uh, parliament uh, uh, when India became free. And he always uh, talked about nonviolence. He talked about uh, respecting the plurality of, of, of fates. Those were values that uh, he believed in. And, you know, one of the great honors 
of this trip was we got to go to Rajkot and, uh, uh, of course, pay respects to uh, to Gandhiji. And they gave their a copy of Gandhi's uh, autobiography, My Experiments with Truth, which I had read in college, but I was rereading it. And one of the things that struck me about the autobiography is his work in South Africa and how diverse it was. It was a work funded and supported by uh, Muslims, by Hindus, by Christians, uh, and that uh, richness of plurality, which uh, uh, Gandhiji champions explicitly in his book and in his thinking, uh, in my view, is uh, defining uh, for India, and, and as, as Gandhi argues in the book, uh, defining for uh, what a, a broad understanding of, of Hinduism itself. So, so this is a nice segue to talk about the kind of present day. As you mentioned, you and your colleagues were in India on August 15th, Indian Independence Day. You were there as Prime Minister Modi addressed the nation from the ramparts of the Red Fort. That's something the PM does, of course, every August 15th. I'd like to ask you to just kind of step back and give us your kind of macro assessment of where India is today, right? So if, if you were back in California and a constituent came up to you to ask you, you know, how are things going in India? You know, how would you respond to that question? I'd say there's extraordinary national pride. There is a, a feeling of self-confidence. There's a feeling of India being uh, on the march, of India being a a nation of equals uh, among other nations and of uh, a rising power that's uh, uh, finding its voice in the world. And this is very different than the India which I used to visit as a a kid uh, when I would come from uh, the United States and meet cousins and they'd ask, could, could I bring them tennis balls from the United States because uh, they didn't have access to that in India and there was a uh, a, a sense of aura almost of someone's coming to visit from America. All of that is gone. I mean, we went to the IITs and 95% of uh, the kids from the IITs who are graduating want to stay in India and are very confident about India's future. So the one sentiment I would say that I uh, was left with and is is this uh, a, a sense that uh, of, of, of pride, of national pride. Uh, now, there are obviously issues that we can get into that, and it's not a perfect democracy. We're not a perfect democracy, but that would be my one one sentiment of, of the trip. It's funny that, that you remember tennis balls. I remember when my brother and I used to visit with our parents uh, back in the 1980s, we would bring Ovaltine, uh, you know, chocolate powder <laughs> and Tang. You remember Tang that you that, that created this fluorescent orange kind of a drink um, and that that seems like a, a, a lifetime ago. I, you know, I, you mentioned that there are issues with Indian democracy as there are with our own. Uh, before your departure to India, you met with leading human rights organizations in the United States many of whom are, are very concerned about the trajectory of Indian democracy. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the concerns these organizations shared with you? And, and you know, to what extent did you raise these issues with your government interlocutors uh, when you were in New Delhi? Well, they're concerned about making sure that uh, India is a state a nation that uh, has dignity uh, for all people and uh, for everyone, regardless of, of their faith, and that they feel that uh, that some places that uh, is being compromised. And so when I was in India, we met, I met with Tushar Gandhi, the great grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, who shared some of his concerns. I met with Muslim leaders from Haryana, uh, who shared some of uh, uh, their concerns about uh, 
uh, people who spoke up uh, in protest uh, against certain government policies. I met with uh, the uh, cookies and uh, representatives of the cookies from uh, who spoke about uh, their concerns in Manipur. Now, I, by the way, the government was well aware that I was having these meetings. So it was uh, in it, to, to their credit that they did not restrict any meeting that uh, I wanted to have. It's not like I did these meetings in secret. My sense was two things. On a people-to-people -people basis, look, these religions have coexisted in India for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. And even when you talk to the Muslim leaders, they said, look, it's not at a societal level that we have these challenges. In fact, when, in one of the hotel lobbies we were staying in, I walked uh, outside for breakfast, and there you had probably 60, 70 people uh, in hijabs, uh, in full Arab gear, Arab dress, and they were socializing, and, and it was a perfectly normal scene. And if you have that in the middle of Washington, D.C., or even New York, you would have people probably gawking and staring, whereas this was completely normal in, in, in India, at least in, the, in, in Mumbai, in the cities. And, and it was a, a, a sense that you've had uh, these religions coexisting for uh, hundreds of years. But of course, there have been uh, issues where, for political reasons, uh, some of the divisions have been exploited, and there have been uh, fear that uh, has been induced, and it. And I, I've tried to speak out uh, against that, just like I've tried to speak out against that happening uh, in the United States. And I, I am hopeful that uh, that we will see pluralism and multiracial democracy flourish in the United States. I'm. And I'm hopeful we'll see it flourish in India, but it's it's always a fight to have that happen. You know, the Biden administration has been criticized by a lot of human rights and pro-democracy organizations for being insufficiently forward when it comes to uh, signaling their discontent with democratic backsliding in India. And at times, this has clashed with the administration's overall emphasis on the global battle between democracy and authoritarianism. You know, I'm wondering if you might assess the administration's handling of democracy issues when it comes to India. Uh, how well have they been able to convey whatever concerns they might have? I think they have conveyed those concerns. The State Department has done reports on, on, on human rights, but I think that they have the appropriate humility in conveying those concerns. You can't uh, have a, give India a lecture, a country two generations removed from colonialism, uh, is not going to be lectured about uh, about human rights when there are imperfections in our uh, our own democracy. I mean, we may have the return of Donald Trump, uh, who wanted to ban all Muslims from entering America. So I think the administration's approach has been to say, uh, we are uh, allies, we are democracies, we are imperfect democracies. Here are concerns that uh, we have with our own democracy. Here are concerns that we have uh, that people have voiced to us, our constituents, uh, uh, about India, and let's work together to, to strengthen uh, those democracies. Uh, it, to me, the tone matters, and it has to be a tone of, of respect as opposed to hectoring. If it's hectoring, it's just going to generate a, uh, a backlash, and India will say, well, why should we listen to you? You know, I, 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 there are a lot of weighty issues, and, and I want to come back to them. But, but before we do that, I, I want to inject a little bit of levity here. You know, one of the objectives of your trip 
uh, and you you mentioned this uh, in the press release uh, announcing the trip, was to quote unquote promote cricket diplomacy between the United States and India, which is not something you hear about a lot in the context of bilateral relations. Tell us a little bit of, uh, more about what you have in mind and, and how this visit furthered that objective. Well, we we had two great uh, cultural objectives. The critic, cricket diplomacy. Uh, was one of them, because you've got a cricket league, actually, in the United States, uh, led by a lot of the great tech leaders, people like Satya Nadella at Microsoft and uh, uh, Anand and Benke are tech leaders in Silicon Valley. They own cricket teams, and they are uh, going to be uh, competing. And so one of the things I wanted to convey is uh, to have uh, people from India visit for those tournaments, uh, which we did. We uh, are, were introduced to Jay Shah, who's the head of the the, the, the cricket uh, organization in uh, Mumbai. Uh, there are issues about having Indian players be able to play on those teams that we're trying to, to, to work through. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the United States will be hosting the T20 World Cup. India is hosting the World Cup, which is not the 20 overs for people who follow cricket. And the, the, the United States will be hosting the 20 over World Cup in the summer. And, and it would be wonderful to get um, someone from India and in India's government to attend, which we conveyed. That, that, that's great to hear, and we'll be on the lookout for that. I, I, I want to, you know, turn your attention to uh, a slightly different subject, uh, something closer to home. Uh, you authored a piece back in January for the magazine Foreign Affairs, uh, in which you argued that Americans should embrace a new economic patriotism that calls for increasing domestic production, bringing jobs back from overseas, and promoting exports. And um, while this piece was ostensibly written with China in mind, it does raise some interesting questions about the compatibility of U.S. industrial policy under this administration and India's own uh, Make in India agenda, which Prime Minister Modi has championed. And I'm, and I'm wondering if I could ask you, you know, to what extent are you worried that this new wave of industrial policy, we see it in the U.S., we see it in the EU, we see it in a lot of other countries, is going to lead to an era of uh, closing and protectionism that could be damaging to some of our larger, uh, more, you know, broader foreign policy and economic objectives when it comes to, you know, integrating and, and relating with countries like India? Well, you raise a good uh, question, but self-reliancy doesn't mean self-sufficiency. And what I was saying is, look, we uh, should have some uh, of the critical industries in the United States and more domestic production of the uh, top 15 steel companies in the world. Nine of them are in China, not a single one in the United States. How is it that we don't have more domestic steel production in the United States? How do we not have more of the active ingredients for basic pharmaceuticals? That doesn't mean that we stop trading with the world or engaging in joint projects. The thing with India is they're not demanding structural trade deficits. We were in Hyderabad with a joint venture between Boeing and Tata that's creating uh, jobs uh, for uh, in India, but it's also creating many jobs in the United States because the Indian uh, 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 airlines, uh, Air India, is buying hundreds of airplanes from the United States. So we don't have the same structural trade deficits with India. The trade is much fairer, creating jobs for Americans and creating jobs for uh, India. Uh, in China's case, you have massive trade deficits where it's a one-way street where we just allowed our industry to be hollowed out. And so I am for trade, but it has to be fair, and it can't be uh, just a ab abdication of 
industry the way we did with China. Hey, Grant the Monster listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. You know, when it comes to kind of what people have called industrial policy 2.0 uh, here in the United States, um, uh, lots of people have have talked about uh, the way in which this has set off a new kind of global war for talent, right? If you look at the CHIPS Act, if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act and other pieces of legislation that this administration and Congress have advanced, um, it is really putting the U.S. in a different position in terms of uh, increasing or renewing our focus on STEM fields, on semiconductor supply chains, on AI, quantum, a, a, a lot of industries which which have a home in, in your congressional district. Um, but many of those industry leaders, whether it's Intel, whether it's Apple and others, have said, you know, we don't actually have the talent necessary in the United States unless we address uh, issues in our immigration system. So it seems like there is an opportunity here to allow for greater labor mobility so talent in India can come and work in the United States and we can make the most uh, of our industrial policy at home while strengthening connections between the U.S. and India. You know, is something like that in the offing? You know, what are the prospects of that given we're headed into an election year in our own country, as is India? Uh, immigration, as you know, as a member of Congress, is a perennially uh, a thorny issue when it comes to negotiating the politics. How do you see this suite of issues and, and can we make progress on this front? We need to. I mean, immigration strengthens the United States. It's not coincidental that my district, Silicon Valley, which accounts for one-third of the entire value of the S&P 500, $10 trillion, 30 companies have generated this extraordinary market value, probably the most wealth generated any single place in the history of humanity, uh, is blessed with uh, immigrants from around the world. And this is a, a unique advantage of the United States. People want to come to the United States from all over the world, and we're getting that talent. We, we, this was a huge advantage for us during the Cold War when the Russians basically wanted to, Soviet Union, the Russians wanted to emigrate. We said, okay, come to the United States and we'll have you do your creative work here. That's The United States has always been this magnet. And what we need to do is uh, get back to a, time, a policy where we're welcoming uh, immigrants in this country to be doing the uh, reindustrialization and being part of this uh, this project. Now, we, we can't have people play games with it. We can't say, okay, we want uh, immigrant labor to come in to take the place of union jobs because we just don't want to pay the union wages, uh, or we want to uh, have market pressures with H-1B to, to undercut American uh, uh, workers. Uh, but what we, uh, and, and some of the people played games with that, and I think that upset folks in, justifiably in the United States. But what we need is folks to, to come in for doing uh, some of the work where we, we don't have the, the, the pipeline yet uh, and to at the same time invest in the STEM pipeline. And it's a balance. And, and this is something that we're coming across at TSMC, which has been delayed in Arizona. 
uh, some of it uh, is is not justified because, I, in my view, they're trying to displace the union with just cheaper labor, and that's not going to fly. But some of it is justified in that you, they need some of the engineering talent from Taiwan to be to come into the United States to help uh, coach and train the, the manufacturing here because we haven't had that capacity for, for years. So we're going to have to find the balance uh, to have successful reindustrialization. You know, let me ask you a little bit about the Indian diaspora uh, here in the United States. Indians, you know, depending on how you count, are either the second or the third largest immigrant community in the United States now. Uh, by some measures, their ranks have grown by 150% or more in the last two decades. Uh, however, there is a growing amount of evidence that suggests that the kind of social polarization we're seeing in India particularly between Hindus and other religious minorities, is replicating itself among the diaspora in America. You know, how concerned are you that polarization that takes place a long ways away in India is being imported into the United States and starting to seep into the diaspora in America? I haven't seen that in my upbringing. Uh, I didn't see that in how I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where we had friends uh, of South Asian origin, of all different backgrounds. Didn't see that in the South Asian organizations I was part of at University of Chicago or Yale when I was at law school. And haven't seen that in my political career, where I have been blessed by support from uh, Hindu Americans, Sikh Americans, Muslim Americans, Pakistani Americans, uh, uh, Bangladeshi uh, Americans. And when people don't believe it, they can go look in my FEC reports and they'll see uh, a very broad base of uh, of support. And so I think you have the fringes uh, that tend to be louder uh, in the United States on uh, maybe social media or, uh, or speaking out. But the vast majority of South Asians uh, are still uh, open to having uh, working together on common issues of education, of immigration, of, uh, of, of having a more just foreign policy around the world. Uh, and uh, I, I, I have had uh, broad support from the, uh, from the South Asian community and hope to continue to, to, to build on that. You know, well, let me just give you an example just to push back for a second of um, an interesting race that happened a couple of years ago in Texas 22 involving an up-and-coming Democrat named Sri Preston Kulkarni. This is in the suburbs of, of, of Houston. Uh, where, uh, you know, this was a, a reliably red district where Kulkarni came in a close second in a previous election, decided to try his luck again in a constituency that includes places like Sugarland, where there is a pretty uh, significant South Asian uh, demographic. And uh, there were splits in that community on account of the fact that it was alleged that Kulkarni had taken money from people associated with the HSS or the American uh, outposts of the RSS, the kind of ideological mothership to the BJP. Now, it's impossible to, to, to prove that that was his downfall in this election, but uh, a lot of stories were written about the fact that um, that kind of polarization that certain South Asian voters, certain Indian voters wouldn't want to vote for somebody who may have had these links, however distant, um, um, you know, did raise concerns at the time. I mean, is this something that 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 you foresee in the future could be more more prevalent? Well, he's got to be a better politician. I don't know what to tell him. Like, he could come shadow me for a week. But <laughs> I, I, I think if you're clear uh, about where you stand, uh, you know, when I I'm very clear. I believe we need a stronger U.S.-India relationship. Uh, I don't apologize for 
seeking closer ties and defense and economics and cultural matters with India. I uh, was honored to be able to meet with Jay Shankar and the prime minister. But I also am very clear that I will stand for pluralism. I will meet with uh, Muslim leaders when I go to India and hear them out and uh, speak up for uh, those issues. And so people know where I stand. And if you look at my Twitter feed uh, after the trip, uh, I got criticized for meeting with the, uh, some of the Muslim leaders. I got criticized for uh, meeting with the government leaders. And you would think, oh, you know, Rose getting criticized from everyone. And then you re but, but then you realize that that is uh, the, the fringe. And the vast majority of people said, OK, yeah, he kind of struck the right balance. And, and we respect him. So I think if you have a place of conviction, and you're consistent about that, and then people over time, they, even when they disagree with you, may may, may uh, come to respect uh, where you stand. And my view is that the sweet spot of where the South Asian community is, is they want uh, a, a closer tie with India. They, they, they recognize the importance of the relationship, but they want that to be in a way that is inclusive of uh, recognizing the dignity of all faiths uh, and uh, and one that celebrates India's secular and pluralistic traditions. You know, we're headed into what looks to be a pretty bruising and brutal election cycle in the United States. Uh, there's one study which shows in 2020 uh, that Asian Americans, uh, Asian American voters specifically moved towards Donald Trump by seven uh, points compared with 2016. Now, it is true that in the aggregate, Asian Americans still vote overwhelmingly for Democrats, but there is mounting evidence to suggest they are more open to Republicans than they've been in the past. I just want to read something you said to NBC News the other day, uh, where you said Democrats need to speak to the aspirations of the Asian American community, which is to have the opportunity for the American dream for themselves and their kids. Um, how concerned are you that the Democratic Party is at risk of losing its hold on what is now the fastest growing ethnic racial community in the country. I'm concerned that uh, we need to have a better economic message, not just for the Asian American community, for, but for the black American community, Latino American community. I mean, we had some uh, loss of working class voters in uh, the African American community, in the Latino community, and in the Asian American community, we have uh, had some erosion. And that's because people feel they can't uh, buy a home, that their salaries haven't kept up with the cost of living, uh, that we're not speaking clearly to how they're going to achieve the American dream and uh, have enough saved up to have a, a, a comfortable life, to have the type of life that uh, my parents came to America for. And I believe the Democratic Party is uh, the party that's providing the economic revitalization of this country uh, and needs to do so in a big way and have a, have a real mission that can inspire people to say, we're going to bring the new manufacturing jobs, the good paying jobs to your communities. We're going to bring these new technology jobs uh, and technology hubs to your, to, to your communities and, uh, and, and uh, help uh, achieve the American dream and make sure that you don't have to pay seven, eight hundred thousand dollars just to have your kid get an education uh, in this country. Make sure that you're not going to have to go bankrupt or have tremendous medical debt. Make sure you're not paying ten thousand bucks for childcare every every uh, uh, every year. I think those economic issues uh, speak to people. We are an aspirational nation. And the Asian American community in particular is aspirational because of our uh, recent immigrant experiences. And uh, if we do that, we will uh, 
be able to win. If we don't address that, uh, those core issues, uh, then we, we risk uh, uh, losing more of these votes. Congressman, you've been very generous with your time. Let me just ask you one final question about the future uh, as it regards the U.S.-India relationship. Your district, California 17, of course, encompasses Silicon Valley. And uh, I paid a visit there uh, last May, and there is quite a lot of excitement about how the United States and India might work together on next-generation tech, right? So things like AI, quantum uh, many of this, uh, much of this cooperation will take place under the aegis of something called ISET, the Initiative on Critical and Emerging Technologies. As you survey the landscape, what are some of the most promising areas of future U.S.-India cooperation? And, and do you think we're on the right path to getting there? Well, I do think that cooperation on critical technology uh, is, is an important area because India, of course, has had a tremendous software skills. Uh, technology skills, a lot of the new types of advanced weapon systems are going to require uh, AI. In fact, when we were in Hyderabad at iHub, we saw uh, presentations by some of the startups that were doing extraordinary things of having drones uh, basically be able to uh, strike targets uh, with the use of AI. Uh, and it will help the United States uh, remain the preeminent military uh, in the world, uh, if we are able to use uh, some of that talent to develop uh, our technology uh, in a way that is strong, we need to make sure, of course, that the, uh, the, the, that the information is protected uh, and make sure that we are uh, able to have the type of cooperation with India that we do with the Great Britain and Japan and, and Israel. And that takes time to, to build that kind of trust. I mean, in 1965, we banned uh, all arms sales to India, and that was the policy for almost 40 years. So uh, you can't expect uh, countries uh, to suddenly then have a relationship like we do with the allies we've had for 30, 40, 50 years. That trust takes time, but we are on the right track. My guest on the show this week is Ro Khanna. He is a member of the House of Representatives representing California's 17th Congressional District. He also serves as co-chair of the Congressional Caucus on India and Indian Americans and recently led a bipartisan delegation to India. Congressman, I know that time is very precious. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your visit, uh, about the U.S. and India, and about the diaspora. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Grant Thamasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we mentioned on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthemasha.com. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Mira Verghese is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.